Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, October 25th, the last week of October. I just can't even believe it. I have no idea where this year went. Time is a strange, strange thing right now. Indeed, I'm Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And uh, we have a lot of great stuff to get into this week. And we are going to start with a New Mexico author, Bill DeBuiz. Hopefully you're familiar with him. If not, I guarantee after hearing our interview with Bill, you will run out to get some of his books. A very thoughtful approach to climate change. His latest book is called The Trail to Kanjiroba. Uh, as he went on an expedition basically in Nepal with healthcare workers. And he talks a lot about how that changed uh, some of his thought processes around climate change to more of a hospice model. Um, not that we think that everything is hopeless with climate change, but that we focus more on caring for Mother Earth than trying to save her. And so he delves much more into that. Uh, it is a great listen. And uh, it is with correspondent Laura Paskus from Arland. And so here now, her interview with Bill DeBuise. Bill DeBuise, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book, um, in which you explore some of the ideas of earth care and this notion of um, not trying to save the earth, but care for it. Um, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited about this conversation today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Laura, as always. So you joined a medical team, trekking to remote villages in Nepal, and along the way, you're seeing signs of change, including climate change. And you seem to be mulling this idea of hospice care for the earth. What does that mean? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the, the values of the medical team I was accompanying uh, were the values of very fundamental medicine. We didn't have access to x-rays or scans or blood work, let alone surgery. And so the service delivered was very direct. It was care over cure. It was warm hand to warm hand. And I wondered, going into the trek, whether those values of caring more than fixing would be good values to apply to earth care. Uh, this book is really the third book in a trilogy. Uh, the first book, A Great Aridness, is on climate change. The second, The Last Unicorn, looks into the terrible situation of wildlife and the loss of biodiversity. And after doing those two books, I was kind of heartsick, and I was looking for a way to be able to look at the facts of these dire situations directly and not lose heart, not be dis too discouraged, not become numb or cynical or even just shut down, but stay committed, not lose heart. So this book is about my journey trying to find a way not to lose heart, but to sort of gain heart and recommit to the work that needs to be done. You wrote in the book, let's be real, we don't live in the gentle Holocene anymore. And no doubt this summer especially is proving that. And throughout the book, you grapple with this idea when it comes to climate change. And eventually in the book, you write, to trust in the uncertainty of the future, believing in the possibility, however remote of beneficial change, that is the essence of hope. And I feel like for me personally, this idea of hope, it kind of throws me off sometimes because I don't know if it's a slogan, if it's kind of an insincere promise, if it prevents me from maybe doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so I loved you're writing about hope in this book. And I'm curious, why is uncertainty of not knowing what might happen such an important part of hope? That's, that's the heart of it in a way. As you say, hope is a really complicated concept. It, it means different things to different people. And often for a lot of people, it just means, will this worry go away? You know, will things go back to the nice way they used to be? And, and you know, that's out, 
out of the picture for us today. But the kind of hope that relies on endurance, on being open and prepared for things to turn in a positive way, for beneficial surprise, that's the kind of hope that's going to get us through the dilemmas we're in now. And, and in a way, uh, this quest of mine was looking for not just an intellectual hope, but a hope in here, uh, a hope that seeps into uh, your whole being. And watching those doctors provide service to hurting people in that remote area and watching that exchange of goodness um, was a real lesson to me. One of our watchwords, uh, slogans in the, in the clinics was strong back, soft front. And that's what I kept seeing these people applying. They were resolute. They were ready for emergency, these doctors and nurses and, and other practitioners. And yet they were always open to the people they were working with. And that was inspiring to me. And, and that was a kind of hope in action, I thought. So you mentioned beneficial surprise. Are there any examples of those out there in the world right now or that we might look forward to when we're thinking about climate change? Well, specifically about climate change, I don't know. All the, all the data looks pretty negative. Um, the big beneficial change that I mention in the book, actually, is that of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The CIA didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. It, and when it came, it came really fast. And some leaders like Vaclav Havel, who is one of my heroes, were ready for it because he had the right kind of hope to, to respond to that surprise uh, as positively as possible and make something really good out of it, which was the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. So I appreciated reading this book for lots of reasons, the hope, um, lots of reasons. But in particular, um, not having left New Mexico since before the pandemic started, I needed to go on this journey with you through the Himalayas. Um, but you've lived in New Mexico for four decades now. What were some of the similarities that you noticed um, in the change that you're seeing, included, including climate change? in the Himalayas and here in northern New Mexico? Well, on, this, uh, on these journeys, we were mostly above timberline. But when we were below timberline, the forests were so similar. Uh, the, the pine that's in Nepal, up to about 11,000 feet or so, is a pine very like a ponderosa pine, another three-needle pine. And it was interesting to me to see that those trees had the same health problems that our trees, I mean, the, the forest dynamics of, of drying, of too much heat, of insect outbreaks, all those things seem to be happening there in exactly the same kind of pattern that we have here. So, and, and it was a mountain world. I live, as you know, an hour north of Santa Fe up in one of the small uh, villages of northern New Mexico. And the village life there and the village life in, in uh, Himalayan Nepal is not all that different. Um, they're both irrigated communities, interestingly enough. And, uh, and I learned something about irrigation there. I learned about irrigation at a level of higher art than I've ever seen it here in, in New Mexico, as a matter of fact. So one of the ideas that you write about in The Last Unicorn, and it comes up again, in your new book that has really stuck with me over the years is this idea that we share this planet with all of these different species and we're just this little planet in a vast universe and every time we allow a species to go extinct our planet becomes a little lonelier and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that idea and and how that idea evolved in you. Well, you know, one of the inspiring teachers on this subject for me is a New Mexico a Pueblo Indian uh, scholar, Rena Swensel, um, from Santa Clara Pueblo. 
one of my favorite mini chapters in the book is really, well, it's titled Rena. And it's, I quote her as saying, and I'll, I'll get the quote a little bit wrong here, but um, she's saying our, our world as humans has just become too small. It's just us. We're only thinking about us and not about the whole community of life through which flows the, the water wind breath, which in her telling sounds an awful lot like the, the Tao of ancient China. Um, so she would say, she's, she's gone now, alas, but she would say that our invention of anthropomorphic gods made us too arrogant, made us seeing the world too narrowly, and we forget about the whole creation of which we are a part, which is really the most glorious thing about our life on this planet, is the connectedness of all those things. I loved that chapter on Rena. I wasn't expecting it, um, and, I, and I loved it. It was really, our New Mexico readers will especially appreciate that. I hope so. The, like you mentioned, this book is the third in a trilogy, A Great Airness, The Last Unicorn. Um, I'm curious how, A Great Airness came out in 2011. I'm curious how your writing has changed, how, how you bear witness now compared with back in 2011 um, and what you want from the reader at this point. Hmm. Golly, that's a question I've never thought about, what I want from the reader. I think one of the things that's changed for me is just to be more confident that I don't have to organize things ahead of time. I don't have to prepare as much. I can go into a trip or a writing effort and just figure it out as I go along. And I think what I most want from a reader is just an openness to take the journey with me, to, uh, to, to just see what happens as well. I think this is a book that has a number of surprising turns and, and surprises in it. And if you stay with it a little bit, I think the rewards are there. But um, there's a certain amount of uh, establishing uh, matters, a certain amount of exposition that uh, is required for the best part to make all the sense that it can. And I think in this book, I, the, the, the end resisted me for a long, long time. But, it, but finally now, I feel the end is the best part of the whole book. Well, I was very happy to go on that journey with you, and I'm sure our viewers will be too. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, for joining me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. We had a little bit of extra time with Bill DeBuis. We appreciate when he comes into the studio. Also want to let you know he's going to be a guest on Caloris, our cultural affairs show, here in a little bit. And we'll let you know all about that as we get a little bit closer. But a uh, great conversation here with Laura Paskus where he really dives into his uh, work process. Again, he goes on the trail for days at a time. And so Laura really wants to know, how do you do that? How do you take good notes? How do you write when you're out in remote areas for long periods of time? What is your process? And so those of you who dabble in any writing at all will really appreciate this, not only the thought process behind his work, but some of the tools he uses as well. So fascinating little extra bit we just didn't have time for in the show, but want to bring it to you here. rest stop um, you know when I'm walking between rest stops I'm composing sentences I'm making mental notes and then I make my notes write them down when I stop and it's always a struggle to you know conserve enough juice finally at the end of the day in my sleeping bag lying you know and writing upside down to make those final notes for the day I always have a a sense that I haven't done enough, that, you know, 
that there's more that I should have done. And then I get back from the trip and I turn my notes over to a dear friend, Catherine Baca, who, who transcribes them and uh, somehow can sort out my horrible writing. And then I, I work from, you know, that, that big file of, uh, of notes. It's always so interesting to hear people's process and their tools. I always like to know what tools you have. Yeah, it's really important to have a, a pen that writes upside down. <laughs> <laughs> right. So toward the end of your journey in this book, as you're heading down into the world of internet and clean clothing and hot showers, you admit your regrets. And I kind of love this. You write, for instance, that You've tried to pack up what you've learned or think you've learned, but your metaphorical pile is a meager, stingy anthill. Will you please talk to me about that? Well, as I say in the book, I had walked, I, I think I calculated something like 300,000 steps or whatever and, and uh, exhausted myself. And, you know, we'd been out on the trail for like five weeks. And I thought, all I have are some mottos and slogans and a, a list of little values, but they didn't really connect with me. You know, they were just in my head. And so I, I really felt I had failed. Um, and then, the, frankly, the epiphany happened. Um, in the walkout on like the third day before the end, something like that, and I, and, and, and I realized there was, that all this stuff could connect, that it, that it, that it did make sense. I don't know whether my, my downness was a function of just really deep fatigue after 150 miles of walking or what, but, um, but somehow it all made sense in the end and uh, in the context of re-entering the rest of the world. And I don't, I don't wanna give away because the book is, um, it, it is a journey, and I don't want to give away kind of the, the ending and kind of what you come to at the end. But I really appreciated your honesty about sort of the regrets and, and almost like trying to find that narrative grasp at the end there. Because I oftentimes feel like when I read sort of books like th that, that are about a journey and, uh, or a quest in some ways, um, it always feels to me like the writer is so confident that he or she knew all along what was going to happen. And I don't ever feel that way as a writer. <laughs> as yeah, a writer. Really. It comes back again to uncertainty. I mean, so many writers want to project uh, an image of knowing and being able to explain everything. And... And I always sense falseness with that. I think if you, if you embrace your lack of knowing, if you embrace uncertainty, if you talk about doubt um, with the reader, the reader says, oh, this is more like my life. And, and that's strategically good in terms of winning the reader over, but it's also just fundamentally truer. You know, we, we don't have pat answers. We have to struggle to get the answers that we get. And this book is, I had a terrible time selling the book actually, because I didn't fully know the ending of the book until I wrote it. And so I couldn't sell it because people doubted that I was gonna come up with an ending. Well, I did. And, and uh, I'm very happy with that. And not to give anything away, this is not a cheesy uh, spoiler alert, but the, the whole learning of the book is embodied in the last 16 words. But to understand what those 16 words stand for, what they mean to unpack them, you really have to go on the journey of the book. So. I'm curious how you've changed, as, how you think you've changed as a writer over the decades. I We mentioned in our last episode, we talked a lot about the Albuquerque uh, multi-use stadium vote that comes before voters here in just a little over a week. November 2nd is election day. It's going to be a very interesting one to see how this goes. 
but it got us to thinking about election in general and how things were going as early voting is in full swing, absentee voting as well. And so on our weekly Facebook Live, host Gene Grant caught up with Bernalillo County Clerk Linda Stover to talk about how things are going, what you need to know, where you need to go, all of those good things, uh, including, you may remember that we passed a same-day voter registration in New Mexico, but it is not fully implemented yet. So some valuable information there. If you think you're going to be able to just roll up on November 2nd, register and then vote, uh, that's just not the case, but we'll find out why and what you need to do to be prepared. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Clerk Stover, thank you very much. We know you're having just a busy time of it right now. We got member election coming up. A couple of quick questions. Um, I've got uh, actually a, a, a point I want to make uh, before we get into the how to vote and all that kind of thing. We have had a number of people move into the county in the last couple of years, or basically between the last election and this one. Are you seeing any appreciable bump in voter registration uh, over the last couple of years? Uh, we've had a lot. Of, uh, well, yes, we have. We've had an increase in voter registration. We've had an increase in people changing their parties, too. Wow. That's been over the last couple of years. Interesting. Now, let's work this backwards from November 2nd. There's a very, on voting day, there's a very important uh, piece of the puzzle here that's not happening <laughs> on election that, that folks might be used to, and that is to be able to register on election day. Tell us why that's not going to be happening uh, this cycle. The same day registration? It broke for me, Kevin. I don't know what uh -oh. you said. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Oh, did I blank blank out there? Yeah. It, it looks like you got. We, we won't be able to register on November second. Do, do I have that information correct? Yes, you do. We did. We're going to have same day registration through uh, early voting only. And the main reason why is that the software that handles all of that can't handle the entire state right now for same day registration. For every county. So we're mm -hmm. working on that. We hope to have it in the future. It's still on the uh, menu, so to speak. We just have to work out the technical difficulties. We are doing it through the clerk's offices during early voting. Mm -hmm. But brings us to now uh, for folks who have not gone through this process before, tell us about early voting here in the county, how one registers, where one registers, and all the basics. Again, if you're new to the to the, to the county, want you to vote this county. time, so we want to have this information. Mm -hmm. If you're brand new to Brindley County and you want to register to vote for the first time, go into any polling location, take a photo ID, a state driver's license, a writ receipt that has your name and address on it, proves that you live in Brindley County, a student ID if you're at the university, anything that can identify that you are indeed a resident of Brindley County, you can register to vote. But the trick is you have to stay and vote. It's all one process. It, it, explain that a little bit more. So while you're there registering, you must vote while you're doing this as well. That's why it's called same day voter registration. Right on. So you register and vote the same day. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about early voting. We just had a deadline pass, of course, um, for what the county uh, is doing. But what, what can one do up until what date to early to early vote? How long do we have here? We have until a week from Saturday to early vote, because then the second, of course, is uh, the election. You can request an absentee ballot up through the 28th, October 28th. Mm -hmm. If you do it at that late date and get it, I strongly suggest that you hand deliver it to one of the polling locations or the clerk's office. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had no indication that there'll be a problem with the mail, none at all. But just to be sure that your vote does count, hand carry it and hand deliver it. Interesting. You anticipated a question. So again, for clarity, you're, you're feeling pretty okay on the mail system right now. But just in case, if you really want to feel 100%, walk it in the hand door. carry it in, yeah. Where can, where can folks find those locations? Uh, they're on burncovote.org. That'll give you all you need to know. Go to my voter file. You can get a sample ballot. You can request an application for an absentee ballot. You can actually fill that application out and submit it right then and receive the absentee oh. ballot. So there's lots, that's your golden egg right there, burncovotes.org. It'll give you any information that you need. 
and all the addresses, the list of all the different places you can do it. You can find something right near your house. There are so oh, many, yes. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I have to tip my hat to in the county. On election day, we have yep. 72 Absolutely. polling locations. So if you're driving around anywhere in Bernalillo County, just hit the brake, park, and go in and vote. Absolutely. Clerk Stober, thank you so much. We want to keep this as a tradition before every election so we do make sure folks are straight. We want people to vote. We want to take away any oh, reason yes, not sir. to vote. <laughs> nice thank to you, see ma'am. You. you take care. Always, always. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Folks, we'll see you Friday night at 7 o'clock on Channel 5.1. All right, we want to uh, always take advantage of the other work we are doing uh, that maybe you haven't been exposed to yet and bring it to you here as well. And we do a lot of other stuff throughout the week too, not just on our Friday night show. So we want to share that with you as well. We had a fascinating conversation recently on Facebook Live for our podcast, Growing Forward. If you don't know about Growing Forward, it's all about the cannabis industry in New Mexico as we barrel towards an April 1st date for the market to officially come to fruition here in New Mexico. One of the things you may not have heard a lot about is the environmental impact of growing cannabis. And just to our north, researchers at Colorado State University have done one of the very first studies about the carbon footprint of growing cannabis, especially indoors, where you're using a fair amount of electricity for lights, air filtration, uh, and temperature balancing, all of those kind of things. And it, it may surprise you. I know it did us on the Growing Forward team. Uh, the bottom line takeaway, it uh, bigger carbon footprint for uh, uh, cannabis, one serving of cannabis, however you want to define that, as opposed to the carbon footprint for a glass of beer or wine or spirits or even a cigarette. And so something that these researchers are looking into in hopes that there's thoughts about regulations in terms of energy efficient appliances or those sorts of things as an industry like this gets going, uh, especially here in New Mexico. So this is uh, from Growing Forward. Our co-hosts for Growing Forward are Megan Kamrick, also the news director at KUNM, and Andy Lyman, who's been covering cannabis for a long time in New Mexico for New Mexico political Report, And we encourage you to go and subscribe to Growing Forward if you haven't already. You can find that just like this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. So here now, a little bit of that conversation on Facebook Live. Welcome everyone to this Facebook Live for the podcast Growing Forward, Cannabis in New Mexico. I'm, your, I'm one of the co-hosts, Andy Lyman of New Mexico Political Report. And I'm Megan Kamrick, your other host and news director at KUNM Radio. We've spent a fair amount of time on this podcast in the past discussing the potential impact of a legal cannabis market on our water supplies. But new research from our neighbors to the north also have raised concerns about another environmental threat, greenhouse gas emissions. Researchers at Colorado State University published their research earlier this year in Nature Sustainability, so joining us today are two of the members of that research team, Haley Summers, a PhD student in mechanical engineering and sustainability, as well as Jason Quinn, associate professor in mechanical engineering and director of the Sustainability Research Laboratory. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great so, to be here. Thank you. So first off, uh, how did the idea for this research project come about? How'd this start? Um, it was sheer curiosity. <laughs> so Jason and I are, are in the mechanical engineering department, as you mentioned, and um, we generally study bioprocessing and, and looking at emissions from various products. And we have been in the agriculture space his historically, but we um, really hadn't approached anything grown in an indoor situation. And as engineers, there's a natural uh, match there that, that it takes a lot of mechanical equipment to grow something indoors. And so we really just raised the question, you know, has it been done before? Have, have people studied the carbon footprint? And we found a paper from Evan Mills in, in 2012 that, that had been done 
um, on a small scale pre-commercialization indoor grow up, um, but nothing had been done since uh, legalization. And so we said, let's tackle it. Let's look at commercial indoor grow and how do we calculate the carbon footprint? It was purely curiosity and it hadn't been done before. How, uh, what exactly were you studying and how do you go about conducting your research? Yeah, so our goal was to understand uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from a general or an average indoor grow facility at a commercial scale. Um, and the way we approach it, we use a technique called life cycle assessment. Um, it has an ISO standard behind it. Uh, the idea is that you track all of the material and um, energy needed to grow cannabis or to make your product. In this case, it was cannabis. And once you understand all your material inputs and all your energy inputs, you can overlay emissions data for those inputs and you just aggregate all that and you get a total carbon footprint. And so that's what we did. We built a model um, that tracks the materials needed and the energy needed to grow in an indoor commercial setting. And then we um, aggregated all the emissions to get a final carbon footprint. So you focus primarily on the carbon uh, footprint of indoor grows, which require more resources like electricity for lights, air filtration, sort of uh, creating an atmosphere, so to speak. Um, are outdoor grows a better solution uh, as a whole, at least in terms of uh, the carbon footprint? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, the scope of our study was purely indoor. Originally, we really wanted to do compare it to greenhouse and outdoor, but the complexity of, of an indoor grow up kind of slowed us down. And, and we really just said, let's just focus on the indoor. Um, in the paper, we said, you know, we really, somebody needs to study greenhouse and outdoor with more certainty. But what we've done as a, as a preliminary factor is we said, let's look at our results for indoor growth and let's just subtract all of the, the, the emissions directly associated to indoor growth. And so when you do that, in general, you're stripping away about 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions just by going outdoor, but that doesn't mean that there aren't added emissions from, let's say, you know, if you till your fuel fill, field at the beginning, there's diesel emissions from the tractor. We did not account for that. We didn't account for disruption in the soil itself and carbon emissions from uh, the soil microbes. So um, just looking at taking your indoor footprint and moving outdoor and just getting rid of those mechanical systems and lights, you can save 80%, but we, we do recommend that Future studies look at the impact from um, uh, added things we didn't consider and doing that simple uh, subtraction. Were you able to figure out what sort of challenges outdoor grows? You sort of mentioned, uh, you know, diesel from tractors, but were you able to see any challenges for outdoor grows um, and maybe why people would tend to go towards indoors? Yeah, I think the most obvious is just regional climate. Right, so if you're in upstate New York or you're in northern Michigan or, or even Colorado, um, you can't get continual annual yields, right? Like you have to sort of create a more comfortable, happy growth environment for the plants. Um, and so I think that's part of it. Um, just you can get multiple harvests per year. And I think the other part of it is a control and consistency. So if you're wanting to deliver, you know, the exact THC for a specific strain, I think to get that repetitively, it's best that you control all that environment. And so there's a time and place, I think, for indoor growth. Um, the one thing we've discussed a lot in our research team is for those times that you don't need to control things so tightly. So let's say you're just growing for high THC and you just want to extract that and concentrate that for like an edible you know, is that a situation where we can grow just one massive outdoor harvest once a year and then extract that and just have a bunch of THC ready for, for um, you know, other concentrated consumables? I think that that could be a step in the right direction when, um, you know, when the, there's the right time and place for that. Do you see any major incentives for outdoor grows? I mean, uh, other than, um, I guess, maybe energy cost-wise, are there incentives to get outdoors? Yeah, I think you just hit it right there. I th I've heard, you know, the cost can be a lot lower. Um, I was, there was just an article, there's a local farm here, an outdoor farm called Los Sueños in Pueblo, Colorado. They're a pretty significant. I think they had 36 acres originally, but they were actually just purchased and their cost, they have a, a big lofty goal of getting their cost down, but a pretty low number and it'll be very competitive um, at, at that price point. So I think that's the biggest 
incentive um, is, a, is a lower operational cost. Um, Jason, do you have any other, in talking to some of the growers, can you remember any other like major incentives for doing outdoor? I feel like I'm missing one. I think that, you know, this is, this is, I'll voice my personal opinion yeah. here. And that is, you know, and especially one of the reasons that I'm here, right, is that consumers can start to drive that as well, right, yeah. is that consumers can start to say, you know, what is my carbon footprint with my consumable, right? And it was it indoor, or was it outdoor? Or, you know, should I be making better choices considering the environment? And so I think mm -hmm. that that's another major driver, like you've seen that in the organic food movement, for example. Um, that was a really consumer-driven system. Um, protein, you know, pr the protein market as well. There's proteins in almost everything, right? And that's really, again, a consumer-driven thing. And so, you know, one of the things that we we were, one of the goals of this study was to help consumers make informed decisions. And I think that could be one of the drivers. It reminds me of, uh, you know, a number of years ago where you start to see this fair trade coffee movement where people start to actually consider where their, their products are coming from and the ethical, um, you know, behavior behind it. You also developed a map to estimate natural gas electricity usage estimates for carbon dioxide emissions. How does that outlook shape up here in New Mexico? Should we be worried? Um, yeah, so so there's, yeah, there's layers. Our, our total carbon estimate has layers. Like you mentioned, we've got an electricity layer. Um, and every grow facility is going to have some level of electricity. And then um, natural gas is typically in like a heating system for your HVAC. Um, I, if I remember right in New Mexico, I don't have the maps in front of me, but New Mexico overall, let's start with greenhouse gases. I think the average for the state is about 4,000 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. That's per kilogram of flour. I'll just, we can talk about what that means uh, later and compare it to some other consumables. But in the grand scheme of the U.S., um, our range was about 2,800 to 5,200. So New Mexico is, is a little bit on the upper end there. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, um, a little bit with the lights, the grid mix uh, for emissions in New Mexico is um, not too, too bad. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is um, the HVAC and in particular, um, the cooling systems. And so your electricity usage is higher in that region because you need a lot of extra cooling during those really, really hot times. Um, because although cannabis likes to be grown at, at high temperatures, it's not like 95 to 100 like you see in New Mexico. So you do need a lot of um, cooling and we generally do that through electric means. So um, that, would, that would be the one hotspot that I can think of off the top of my head. You don't need a lot of dehumidification in the region, right? Because it's dry. So, yeah. Should we compare it to other consumables? <laughs> yeah, we can do that so that the number makes more sense, right? Sure. So, um, so what we did was, um, let me pull up here just so I have a couple numbers off the top of my head. Um, yeah, we compared to um, other recreational consumables that would be, um, um, you know, like uh, in the same vein, I think we would, if we compared to beef or cheese, you know, we're not really hitting target to target, right? You don't consume cannabis for the same reasons you consume beef. So we chose to compare to things like beer, wine, cigarettes. Um, and we've done this after the study came out and we are looking at, let me see if I have a, um, the average, so yeah, and we did it on a per serving, which is also sort of a, an ambiguous variable, right? Like a per serving is, is arbitrary with users and it varies a lot. And so what we did is we said one serving of cannabis is the amount of THC uh, delivered to the consumer that matches the edible amount we have as a serving here. So in Colorado, that's 10 milligrams of THC delivered to the consumer. So for the amount of flour that's needed to get you that amount of THC, cannabis on average around the U.S., your emissions for that amount of THC is worse than one beer, a glass of wine, a shot, a cigarette. It's worse than all of them. Um, there are parts of the U.S. that score better than others, but no matter where you're growing indoors, one serving of 10, 10 milligrams THC flour um, 
will be higher in your emissions than your other recreational consumables. Uh, Jason, how hard was this project considering the sort of uh, varying levels of legality um, of, of cannabis across the country? Yeah, I mean, what we did there is we didn't even consider legality as a input to this model, right? What we did was we just modeled the entire United States. And I think that the goal here was for states who have not legalized yet is to potentially consider the environmental impact as they start to legalize and maybe put limitations on the energy use per square foot, for example, of a facility um, to, you know, again, start to factor in some of these environmental impacts into um, policies that are being deployed as a part of the legalization. And so, um, you know, to directly answer the question, we didn't really care whether it was legal or not. We just said, here's the entire United States, right? Um, and then, you know, what was interesting with some of the discussion is that when Colorado first legalized, you know, there was a co-location requirement, right? And so that really pushed towards indoor cultivation systems because people are going to consume in downtown Denver, right? The same way that they're going to consume in downtown Albuquerque. And so with that co-location requirement, you have to do an indoor grow facility because that's what, what is available because your retail space has to be co-located with the cultivation systems, right? And so yeah. um, that was an interesting point of like, that was probably the worst thing you could do in <laughs> terms of environmental impact was make that policy, right? And so, you know, again, we were kind of saying, hey, let's think about some of these things as other states choose to legalize. It's sort of unrelated to our conversation, but that is interesting. That's something very different than down here in New Mexico that... Um, they haven't really addressed it, but I would tend to think that some regulators would say, don't have your grow right next to where customers are. But it sounds like that's what it is in Colorado. You have to have a co-location. That was the early policy. Uh, I think that's lifted. I don't know when it had lifted, but yeah, we don't have that the same okay. anymore. Gotcha. Why is the information you two have uncovered important, especially in our state as we're just now moving into legalization, full legalization? Yeah, I mean, I think, we are in a bit of a climate crisis, right? And so um, bringing on whole industries that are rapidly growing the way that, that the marijuana industry is growing, um, we need to intrinsically be thinking about environmental factors as we grow and, and bring online uh, a whole new industry. And we haven't done that here. And that's led to pretty substantial carbon footprints um, and as the industry grows, unless we start building it into policy, best management practice guides, um, we were going to worsen the climate situation and just make it harder for ourselves down the line. This, this may be out of the purview and for either of you, you can chime in. Um, is, is this something that regulators should be looking at now early in New Mexico to sort of, um, we, have, we have a 30 day session coming up. It's supposed to be just for budget, but maybe in the next couple of years, is this something regulators should be taking seriously now instead of uh, later? Yes, I would. I would say so. It, it, you know, mostly to the benefit of the growers, right? If growers are setting up an operation, if a new policy comes out in five years, they're going to be pretty upset that they have to all of a sudden maybe change their the way they're running their HVAC, or they have to invest in X amount of you know Energy Star rated equipment or whatever it might be. That is going to hurt growers down downstream, and so. I think to work in harmony, we really should be getting ahead of it and then setting up growers for success. It's only going to help them economically if they have low energy use as well. Do you, can uh, you mm -hmm. Go ahead, Andy, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go no, ahead. no, that's, go ahead, Andy. Uh, what, can you think of any specific, I mean, like what type of regulations could you see that would help sort of curb some of this? Yeah, so Jason's mentioned the one about energy use. I think that's in um, Illinois, there's like a maximum wattage per square foot for your lights. Um, uh, California is looking at mandating all LEDs. Um, if we talk about, you know, the whole holistic system, like Jason mentioned, we can't, if we require co-location and you, you want to put a retail in downtown Albuquerque, you're going to gravitate towards indoor just from a theft and security standpoint. Um, and so, you know, allowing sort of these more distributed systems within your own state, um, I mean, if we want to talk federal, we could, if we just, you know, legalize recreational altogether, you could start to have these centralized hubs, you know, look at the map, the greenhouse gas map, and you grow in the places that, that you know, indoor is not going to go anywhere. We still need it in some sense. So you put those indoor locations in the better locations, and then you just cross state lines. 
And those transportation emissions are going to be pretty negligible because you can transport 40,000 pounds of dry weight in a truck. It's a lot of weed and it's not a lot of diesel use. So um, looking at systems like that can also help. That's one thing I remember, I think, reading from this study was the difference when you're talking about other, just any other consumable, that you have regions of, of grove sites, right? Where, you know, not every state is growing oranges. Maybe they are, but it's not like, you know, they're, they're all trying to compete with Florida or California, that we have these regions and you can kind of ship things across the country and that right. seems to save, save some energy maybe. Right. It seems as if, you know, we've got this optimized system in almost every other commodity we have. But with cannabis, we're sort of everybody's like doing their own thing and we're all wild, wild west come reinventing the wheel. And we shouldn't be doing that, right? We should be working together, coming up with the most efficient systems and the most efficient way, both cost and, and environmental impact to, to really get this industry where it can be. If I can build on that just briefly, I think one of the biggest challenges is that there's no real incentive for the growers, right? They have such a high markup revenue potential is that saving energy is not going to make or break their facility right, is that quality of product is really the primary focus that they're going after. And so they will emit GHGs at will, if you will, in order to achieve that, that quality that they want. And so from a policy perspective, and Haley's already mentioned this, right, edibles, let's grow those outdoors, right, is that that's a THC extraction process, we don't care what the bud looks like, and that we can afford a lower efficiency or a lower THC content um, at, at, the, at the expense of greenhouse gases, right, and then vice versa for the quality of products. Yeah, we can have some indoor grow facilities because, you know, let's be realistic, right? The people like certain things to look a certain way. And that is an important thing, but there are some trade-offs that we can do. So it sounds like, are, are you arguing for um, more of market-driven solutions or more of a regulatory <laughs> environment? You know, I think that realistically, right? I mean, realistically, this is going to, in my opinion, this is going to be consumer-driven, right? Um, is that... I haven't seen many policies come out. California obviously is very progressive and they could lead in that fashion. Um, I, I don't think that this podcast is going to change the regulatory <laughs> landscape of New Mexico. I could be wrong. I would love to be wrong, <laughs> right? Um, but that being said is that, you know, if there's a consumer or two out there that start asking questions of, you know, the same way that, you know, I don't know, people in Portland started asking, well, where where's my beef coming from, right? Um, you know, that kind of led there. And if we can start asking some of these questions, it, it, who knows what might happen, right? Your study came out in March of this year. Um, how has it been received so far? What, what feedback are you getting? Have any the states or municipalities taken any action based on what you've learned? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think generally it's been, you know, most of who we inter interact with is media coverage. Um, I, I, I don't know of any direct, you know, I just know that we've kind of re reinvigorated the conversation, I think is really what the study has done. There was an initial surge in 2012 with Evan Mills. And I think we just started getting the conversation going again, because now here we are nine years later, we've got more states coming online, more people interested in it. Um, I don't know, Jason, have you heard any direct any policy or groups that have done a spin-up of what we started? No, I think that, you know, Haley's hit on it, right? You know, we were trending on Reddit, which was that, that I'm, I'm getting smarter every day in terms of, <laughs> you know, what, what, what is having impact, right? Um, got picked up from a variety of news organizations. It's um, cover article for this specific issue of the journal. Um, and so that's all exciting stuff for us. And so just educating the public has really has, has been the impact. In my experience with uh, watching the legislature here, if it does come up, it's likely going to be somebody saying some study I read, you know, not really knowing what they're even citing. Right. Um, so what are the next steps in the research and what, what more do you hope to learn or need to learn to sort of further this, this conversation? I, I think the big ones are we really need to fully understand greenhouse and outdoor growth right? Like our, our studies speculated, those would be better, but we need to put solid numbers on them. Um, we need to have solid comparison um, uh, to other consumables. Uh, what we've done is sort of like a back of the envelope calculation. Um, and then we need, we need scenarios um, where we go in and we play games with what happens if you run an LED situation? What happens if you run a different HVAC setup? And, and really dial in practical solutions. 
I think that's that would be very beneficial. Um, Jason, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think Haley's hit the big ones, right? I think that, um, you know, continuing to do things like this is really exciting for us. Um, it's great to hear interest and continue to talk about the work. And um, I think a huge compliment to Haley is that there, nobody's been able to poke any holes in the work. And so it's it's been, it's stood up to, I mean, just countless inquiries and questions. And so I think that that is just a testament to the quality of the work that that Haley led here. And so just, um, you know, it's it's been great to see that people have responded positively um, and that, you know, we haven't identified any major weaknesses in terms of the work that we've generated. Megan, do you have any uh, further questions? I do not. This has been really interesting. Thank you yeah, both. Thank you both for coming. And hopefully we can continue this conversation as things move along. We can have you back on. But thank you so much for joining us today. Yep, this has, thank you so much. Thanks to Jason Quinn and Haley Summers. This has been a Facebook Live for our podcast, Growing Forward. And we want to thank our guests for joining us and for all of you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, recent episodes, including a trip to a local garden shop, is up right now. You can find out how business has changed for them since recreational use cannabis was legalized here in New Mexico. And you can also find a discussion online, <clears throat> excuse me, you can find a discussion uh, a couple episodes back about the role of the New Mexico Cannabis Advisory Panel within our New uh, Cannabis Control Division. And be sure to tune in next week as we dive into the complicated issue of consumption areas. That will do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We appreciate the entire NMIF team. We hope you have a terrific week. We want to let you know about some of the things we got in store for you on the next episode, which should be due out Friday. We're going to be taking a look at the proposed merger between PM, our public service company of New Mexico, and Avangrid. Uh, this is a company that uh, has been established in Maine for a while, and there is some consternation there. So is that something that should give us pause here in New Mexico? We're going to talk to a reporter who's been covering that uh, story and uh, see what it means for New Mexico, what we should be thinking about there. We're also going to have more on the Albuquerque Soccer Stadium proposal. Uh, we'll hear from city councilors where they fall on it and what they think about the idea, what their reservations might be. So lots of great stuff coming up. We'll have the line opinion table back. We hope you will tune in for all of that. Until then, we hope you have a great week. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>